Well, thank you, Anne, and everybody. Good morning, everyone. Pleasure to be here. Ooh. Pleasure to be here with you once again. I'm sorry I didn't make it last time, but uh, I am now clear from COVID, so it's safe to be here. And, um, and what a pleasure it always is to meet in the name of the Lord, it's God's people, to gather in His presence and uh, listen to the Word and worship Him, pray. It's uh, always a wonderful thing. One looks at what happens in the world at the moment, where people turn to so many other places for inspiration or encouragement or a cause or something, and uh, you feel how sad that they have abandoned the one real cause worth living for, and that's to follow Jesus. <clears throat> I don't know if you saw the uh, final match of the Adelaide International Tennis competition a couple of weeks back. Did, um, did anybody see the final presentation for the winners for that? Uh, okay, you're too holy, that's good. No. Um, what happened was that uh, after the match was over and the two competitors are there, um, that the MC then gave the traditional uh, tribute to the elders, past, present and future, and then the Minister for Tourism in South Australia, she got up and she gave the traditional greeting to all this past, present and future. And then they caught up an uncle or somebody, an Aboriginal man, and he's kind of skimpily dressed, but respectable, but paint and stripes all over his body. And then he proceeded to announce that he was going to call upon his ancestors to pronounce a blessing on the gathered community which he proceeded to do, knocking a couple of sticks together, moving around in a circle, and praying in his own language, and then referred afterwards in English to the fact that he had asked for his ancestors to energise us. And then it came to the presentation of the trophy, and the trophy that the winner got was a wooden carving, and what the Bible might have called a graven image, in the form of a snake. He killed him snakes standing on his tail like that. And then they gave a smaller version of that to the runner-up, which was also a little carved wooden snake. And the Minister of Tourism was there with a beaming smile on her face and looked like she was so excited she could hardly contain herself. And then, um, I don't know what to make of this, but Djokovic, who won the tournament, um, as soon as, uh, when he'd won the match, he went to his usual procedure of kissing the ground and, and then pointing up to heaven as if to thank God, which he always does. But then as soon as this other ceremony was over, he raced over and embraced the Aboriginal man. <laughs> and clearly had no idea what's going on in the spiritual realm. And I looked at that and I thought, I can understand now a little better how the Israelites so commonly would forsake the true God and go to worship a graven image. Because no doubt in their culture, as happened here the other night, it was presented not as a religious alternative, but this, this is a cultural thing. It's a cult, we're just trying to please uh, Aboriginal brothers and sisters. And I thought, well, a, a laudable motive, no doubt, but just illustrating the fact that I just try to think if, if you or I had got up there and we had prayed a prayer in the name of Jesus, his blessing to come down upon that whole tennis community, I wonder what kind of reaction there'd be. And I think a lot of people would be very pleased, but the authorities were not. And we have this uh, secularisation trend. I'm not sure not anti-Aboriginal people at all. 
You still have been married eight years ago, we ate with them, we died with them, we worshiped with them. You know, lots of respect for, for that. Um, but when we were asked to accept very religious beliefs that we, our missionaries for 200 years, have tried to save people from, I think, what are we coming to? Very disappointing. Anyway, I didn't come to talk about that. But uh, I always want to remember how important it is that we make Christ the centre of everything. And um, Alex, I don't want to take away what you've just done at all because you did it very well and much appreciated and I love the hymn that you chose. But I have to say, I'm very disappointed that somewhere along the way, some of our modern songwriters who put a new tune to the song actually changed the words. Did you know that? I Yeah. And so in the first stanza, when, the, when we sang, it says, and, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. The original song version was, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Now, you may say that's splitting hairs, perhaps it is, but whatever the new songwriters have done, they don't have a poetic bone in their body, as far as I can see. <laughs> the image of leaning on Jesus' name to me is such a vivid, graphic thing. You can picture that. You can picture people leaning on the name of Jesus. And then, and I'm nothing wrong with trusting in the name of Jesus either, but I thought such a beautiful new image to look at. And now it's gone. Anyway, that's my little beef for today. But thanks for the song anyway. It's a good song. Alright. Now, this morning, I'm going to, I've got, I think, three Sundays all up coming up in the next few weeks. So I thought I'd take a, a, a three-part message. It's based on Colossians chapter 3. So I don't know where we are, but here we are. Okay, so there's, this is, these are the verses we're going to look at today from chapter 3 of Colossians. And so to me, it's a, you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ when your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Can we pray together? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, please give us sharp minds to understand and soft hearts to believe. In Jesus' name. Amen. We want God to give us clear thinking, soft believing, so that we are uh, vigorous in our examination of Scripture. We don't just speak over the surface, but at the same time we're not so fixed in our thinking that our mind, our hearts cannot be changed and softened by the love of Christ to us. Now, to jump into a passage like this halfway through the book, uh, the letter to the Colossians, of course it's missing, missing a lot of foundational stuff. And what Paul is doing here is almost sort of revising a bit of what he said at the beginning. And uh, so, in chapter 1, if you've been raised with Christ, well, he talks about it in chapter 2, and he talks about being baptised. So, obvious question, I think, the answer anyway. How many of you have been baptised as believers? Baptised in water as believers? Yes, no? Okay, okay. Properly, I mean, properly baptised, immersed. <laughs> okay. All right. And so that's why he's referring back to that, because he's talked about that in chapter 2. But I have another question for you, and the question is, uh, what's the difference between the indicative and the imperative? You're going to say, I did not come to church today to get a grammar lesson. <laughs> 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 
Probably some enthusiasts again. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, that's a fair question, but it's actually I'm, I'm going to be unfair and suggest the answer it anyway. Does anybody know, grammatically, the difference between indicative and imperative? No? Yes? Okay, I don't want anybody to show off here to us, so I'll tell you so that we save people from showing off. Okay. The, the indicative is, a, is simply a description of a statement of what is. Indicate. It indicates what is. It just it says what is. So, we are here in church today. That's an indicative statement. The imperative is a command. Comes to the Latin word imperator, which talks about, means emperor. It's a command. And so if I said, you should be in church today, that's an imperative. The indicative states what is, imperative states what ought to be. That's a, it's a simple difference. But there's a difference a lot of us miss in coming to scripture. And a lot of mistakes, that, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that being a follower of Jesus is, is all imperative. And they miss the indicative. In other words, it's all what we ought to be doing, but it doesn't give the basis on which we know what to do. So in this passage, Paul here takes those two things one at a time. And so, let's look at the indicative. He says that first of all, if you have been raised with Christ, and then he goes further down and says, you've died, your life is hidden with Christ. Now that's all indicative stuff. And I've put them now in the, not in his order, but the order which actually happened. First of all, you have died with Christ. Okay. Um, in other words, we are a group of dead people here today, in one sense. We're all dead. Because the old life is finished. You know, to quote Paul elsewhere, Galatians 2 verse 20, which I think I quoted last time I was here. Um, but Alex, I don't remember my talk either, so I hope we do disappoint you. Uh, Galatians 2.20, which is, I have been crucified with Christ. And in chapter 2 of Colossians, uh, Paul says, uh, you are buried with him in baptism. Uh, dead, buried, crucified. These are all different words, but they're all saying that when we come to Jesus, it's an end to one phase. It's the, it's the death of something, the death of our old life, the death of our old way of living. And uh, now, we don't do that to ourselves. You can't crucify yourself, for example. You might be able to hammer the nails in your feet and one arm, but you've still got one arm left. What do you do with that one? <laughs> and we shouldn't, shouldn't laugh about crucifixion, but, but, I mean, but that's the reality. You can't crucify yourself. Someone else has to do that. And um, so when Paul talks about uh, and burying, saying you can't bury yourself either, I'm sure you're already dead. You, know, you can't bury yourself. Someone else has to do that. So these are things that, that we can't do for ourselves, but, but God does in Christ. In, in enabling us to put an end to the old life, put it to death so it no longer has any power over us. And then the next thing Paul talks about here is, is being raised with him. Now in between those two things is also being made alive in him. But he's all just doing a summary here, so we'll put all that together. So we're made alive, we're raised in Christ. It's got the same thing there. But we can't do that. Only one person in all of history has raised himself from the dead. That's Jesus. Other people have been raised from the dead, but they didn't do it themselves. Someone else did it. Either a very clever group of surgeons or doctors got them revived, or uh, God did it through prayer or something, but we can't raise ourselves. We can't give life to ourselves. 
And then that's what revival is. Revival is new life. We sang about that earlier today. And uh, how we, we can't bring revival. Only God can do that. It's a sovereign act of God. But the fact is he has done that. And when we are baptised, that's the expression of that, we have to be baptised by faith. And be careful to say this in chapter 2. He says um, that we've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised in baptism by the operation of God. By the power of God, if you like. So it's, it's, it's what God does, this miraculous work in us. And it's not the water, it's not the action going under and everything. It's, it's just simply the fact that by faith, when we are baptised, then God's Spirit comes to work and does something marvellous in us. So we become new people. <clears throat> and that's something we really need to get hold of. We've sung about it today. We've sung about it quite often, I guess. But we need to get hold of that, that we are new people in Jesus. We're not the same people anymore. We've been made alive. We were raised with Him. And then the third one's an interesting one. He says there that um, we are hidden with Christ. Hidden with Christ in God. Now the word, uh, the Greek word that Paul uses there for, for hide is um, the word from which we get the English word crypt. And you know, a crypt is a place uh, in where it's a kind of a burial chamber. And the coffin, and rich people often have you know, an underground part of their home or their, if they're really rich, they have a chapel under the chapel. And got, or when it's in a church, sometimes it places where people can be stored, kind of, not actually buried, they put it in an underground vault. And we call that a crypt. But it's a not, not a place that people go visiting very often. It's a very secret place. And so that that's, comes from that. So it's, it's not the same meaning here, but it's the same kind of idea. So here we are hidden with Christ. And I think this is a truth that we need to get hold of strongly as well too, that we are, we are hidden with Him. And uh, so what a sense of security that gives us when thinking about the attacks of the enemy, the attacks of the evil one, like the story we heard this morning about the songwriter died peacefully, but hidden with Christ. Hidden with Christ. And no, no enemy can break into that. And nobody can attack me, nobody can successfully attack that. No one can, can do any damage when we are hidden with Christ, we're in a place of security and safety with Him. It's not a vault. I don't know, the idea is the same, but it's we're hidden in Him. And that's part of the deal of being a Christian. So we can change the word, maybe just have to protect it in Him. So we're safe in, in Jesus. And plenty of songs have sung about that as well. There's one song that he says, safe in the arms of Jesus. That's the same kind of idea there. So these are all indicative things. These are things that uh, the, the Bible says God has done. And then if you look at the, uh, uh, the last one there as well, down there says Christ, who is our life, when he appears, we will also appear with him in glory. You've noticed I've highlighted the word with, with there, there and there and there. Because these are all things, these indicative things are things that happen with Christ. They can't happen without Him. We can't do them on our own. And we don't have to do it on our own because it is all a miracle that Jesus does in our lives. And of course, people don't understand that. They just don't get it. And I talked about the Aboriginal ceremony before here in South Australia, the city of churches. But I know Aboriginal people, Aboriginal Christians, who are probably even more appalled than we would be at that. 
Because they know that Jesus saved them from all that. He delivered them and they, they don't want that. They don't want to see us reverting back to Aboriginal prayers and to their ancestors, praying to dead people. And they, they, they found, I remember um, one Aboriginal evangelist saying to me one day, he said, I said, oh, we are so glad that you people came to us, came here and brought us the good news about Jesus. He said, we are so thankful for that. Um, but I don't hear the press quoting those people much. <laughs> you know, they're not interested in that. All they want to know is there's stories about conflict and anger and bitterness. And, and again, there's so much of what has happened amongst all of our people, all of our whole culture has been done by the preaching of the gospel. And it's all with Christ, it's all what Christ has done in us. And it's not to say that we don't care, of course we care. And, and that's why, um, another simple example, uh, every now and again you can find some reference in the press to uh, Aboriginal di uh, dialect being codified and, and uh, written, put in a written format. And what you don't hear is the fact that vast majority of that sort of work has been done by missionaries in order to get the word of God into the hands of people who couldn't read it otherwise. And so if some other person comes along now and does a PhD in some sort of study becomes a hero as if he's done something new. But Christians have been doing that for two centuries here, bringing the word of life to people. Well, I'm just complaining a bit louder. <laughs> but it seems that there's such a, an unfairness, if you like, in some ways, a lack of respect. And of course, it comes back to the fact that people just don't really understand. I was, um, my wife and I just had a holiday recently. We were uh, in the Sydney airport. And because of Vanessa, Vanessa's mobility issues, she had a wheelchair, we are taking her down to the carousel to get our stuff. And a South Sea, this person of South Sea origin did that. And so when we got there, she gave me a little tip, which I said, you don't do that. But yeah, she did. And uh, he leaned down and he said, oh, he said, bless you. And I thought, that sounds a bit jargonistic for Christians. So I just, uh, when I could, said to her, that sounds like Christian talk. He said, oh, and I said, uh, are you a Christian? He said, yes. And I said, what brand? <laughs> and he said, oh, he said, I'm not religious. I just love Jesus. <laughs> and I thought, what a beautiful answer. And there's a bit more to the story as well. That um, I then said, well, next to what local church do you go to? <laughs> he said, oh, it's a church called Lifegate. And uh, he, I, he said, do you know it? Because I don't live in Sydney anymore. I said, no, I can't think we're alive. He said, I said, where is it? He yeah, told me he's in Padstow. And I replied, well, I, I do know a church in Padstow. In fact, it's in there, it's right next to a pizza shop. And then I thought, and it's, it's called Lifegate. <laughs> and it's actually pastored by a table graduate. And it's been there 15 years now. And the church has been through a wonderful phase of new life and revival and flourishing and church planting. Beautiful church. So just a little coincidence there. But I love that man's answer. I'm not religious, I just love Jesus. But what a, what a beautiful answer that was. And that's what we're talking about here, that it's not religion, it's not religious practice, it is simply loving Jesus. But, so that's the indicative, that's what God, God that's who we are. We sang a song about that too this morning. Uh, knowing who I am. So knowing who we are, that the old life is finished, new life is come, we're raised in the newness of life, we've got a great hope in Christ coming again, we, we have a hope that we'll be glorified in Him. These are all the indicative statements, things we simply believe. But then come the imperatives. The imperatives are then what we have to do. So, 
And the American Russian before Christ, indicative is what happens to us with Christ, or in Christ if you like, but here what we do before Christ, and there are two things here that are specifically mentioned, and no doubt some other assumptions, but two that are mentioned. First one is seek. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are right, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If I had invented Christianity, I'd have made it more simple. In some ways. I mean, it's really very simple. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. That's very simple. But when it comes to the actual theology, um, Mohammed, very simple. You've got one God, you're holy, you're prophets. That's it. Very simple. You come to them about Jesus and it says, well, he's in heaven. But hang on. In chapter 1 of the Colossians, Paul says, Christ is in you, the hope and glory. Where is he? Is he in heaven or is he in us? <laughs> and anyway, and who did Jesus raise himself from the dead or did God raise him from the dead? How did that happen? And so we've got, then becomes the whole mystery of the Trinity. And you know, I would not have done that if I'd have been a Christian. Make it simple, make it easy. But when you think about it, who, who would ever dream of a religion like this? Whoever would imagine such a thing, and that God would become human and die for us and through his death win a great victory. Who would even conceive that? Who would conceive of a God where, who, who, is not, who is love and we know his love because within the Godhead there is a trinity of love which is unsurpassed. A model of love that we can never even come close to. I mean, you never dream that up. And so in many ways it's a bit of one of the indirect proofs that we're on the right track. But here, he says, let's think about Christ in heaven for the moment. Okay, his spirit's in you. But think about Christ in heaven. So he says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so here's a wonderful declaration of, of the positional relationship we have with Jesus. That he lives within us, sure, but let's not confine him to us, ourselves. Let's not say so that he's so small, he's got to be small enough to fit inside us. It's not like that. He's, yes, his spirit's in us, but he is seated at the right hand of God. Now, seated in the heavenly places. He's in a place of authority, in a place of power. The Bible says that he is far above, Paul says this in Ephesians 1, far above every principality, every power, every name, every authority, uh, every ruler. Above all of those, there is no film star, there's no rock star, there's no politician, there's no military leader, there's no political leader, there's no sportsman, there's no industrialist, there's no multi-billionaire, there's nobody that's even close to where Jesus is. And he is far above every name that could ever be named, every power you could ever imagine, every force you could ever think of, he's greater than any of that. And he's above every demon, and every angel, and every devil, and every evil spirit. He's above every wickedness of humankind. He's above every corrupt dictator and military leader. He's above all of those people. And the people that really influence our society, the entertainment industry, the media, he's above all of them. And they can do their hardest as they do to try and change our culture, to try and minimise Christianity. But at the end of the day, Jesus is still Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And God, Paul says, said, said, seek that, seek that. Keep that in the front of your thinking of who Jesus is. He is, uh, the, he is the Christ, he is the, the, the Redeemer, and 
You've been raised with him, so seek the things that are above where Christ is. It's important that we maintain that focus. It is so easy in our world to seek a whole lot of other things, and many of them are good, and many of them should, we should seek. We should you know, seek to have strong families, and, and good farms, and nice businesses, and with all those things we need to do well, of course. But primarily, through all of that, the ultimate quest that we pursue is our quest to follow Jesus. To make Him the centre and Him the focus of our lives. And so we seek everything to do with Him, everything associated with Him. We seek integrity and righteousness, as we've talked about this morning. We, uh, we seek love and we seek the kind of celebration we've talked about today. Much of our singing and all these things, they are the things that we want to primarily succeed in. So that even if, God forbid, the farm does fail or the business doesn't work or church doesn't go so well, whatever it is, even so, He doesn't fail. And we still rely upon Him, we still trust in Him, because that is where our ultimate purpose and destiny of our lives is. And then the second thing He taught us to do is to think. Now it's a... Uh, he says, so think or set your minds. I press the right button for Where is it there? Now think or set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, the interesting thing about both these verbs, by the way, is then the, the other verbs, the ones that says died, hidden, uh, raised, they're all past tense. You've died, you've been raised, you've been brought back to life, you've been raised. Your life is hidden. They're, they're all past tense. They're all describing something that's finished. But these two verbs, seek and think, they're both present continuous tense. It means they go on and on and on and on and on. It's not just, it's not just you think one day, think, oh yeah, that's good. And then you go on and forget all about it. It's, it's every day. The back of my mind, somewhere, there'll always be this wonderful pursuit of Jesus and the things there are to do with Him. And so, um, think on these things, some translations say, set your mind on them. So, make sure that our thinking is always it's kind of filtered through, through this. Because we think about Jesus, we think about Him, think about who He is and what He's done, then everything else is filtered through that, and it all makes sense, it all comes together well. So, it's that when um, Jesus quoted the great of the second great commandment, um, well, it's the first commandment, I suppose, really. Um, his lawyer asked him, um, What's, what, are they, what, what should I do? And Jesus says, You should love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Mark chapter 12. It's interesting that he was, of course, just quoting from Moses there, from the Old Testament. But he changed it, changed it, added to it. What Moses said was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What Jesus said was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Interesting addition. The important this extra one, love with all your mind. In other words, it's a thoughtful thing. We don't, we don't have a kind of stupid Ignorant faith, we have a thoughtful faith. It says, use your mind. Love God with all your mind. Here the Bible says, set your mind on things that are above. So make that a kind of a focal guide point for our thinking. And so to the Philippians in chapter 2, Paul writes, uh, 
whatever things are lovely, kind, pure, good, true, there's any virtue, there's any grace, think on those things. So that needs to be the kind of mindset that we have, that we rejoice in cleanliness and purity and uprightness and decency and goodness. We rejoice in those things and we try to set our mind on those things. I have to say that I think in our society, as part of what I've said already, there are many people who think they're doing good things. Many of the causes that people espouse, they actually sincerely believe they are doing something really good. But so often those things actually lead them into a misleading path, a dangerous path, which is like the truth, but it's not really the truth. And so we need to see, let's measure everything according to the Gospel, everything according to Jesus. And it's not just saying, what would Jesus do? It's saying, um, how can I in my life live in such a way that Christ is presented? People see Jesus. So here's this, this beautiful challenge to us to simply just uh, focus our thinking and keep on thinking all the time centred on Christ. And then that brings this wonderful hope that is mentioned in verse 4 there. It says that when Christ is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so we have this great hope for the second coming of the Lord. When Jesus comes again, and when he does come again, we're going to see and the wonder of his glory and his majesty. What a marvellous day that will be. <coughs> and uh, a lot of people won't think so. But what a great day it will be. We see Christ coming in his glory. And they, the Bible makes it very plain that uh, some people when Jesus comes again will be well, almost, I think, frightening passages in Revelation where it says that the, the rich and the mighty will call for the hills and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face, the wrath of God. And I think what kind of terror must be in people's hearts that they'd rather have Mount Parker be uprooted and dumped on top of them than, than to face Jesus. I mean, how, what kind of terror must be there? What kind of fear? What kind of a, just an absolute panic must be there? But then the word used to describe how believers will, 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 will act was well, they will rejoice when they see him. And uh, they'll be in their glory when Christ comes again. And what a great and wonderful experience that will be. So, you know, could even be today. I might not even get through this sermon, which would be a terrible thing, but you know, maybe. <laughs> that could happen. <laughs> and how many of you would rather see Jesus and listen to me? <laughs> Did I get some enthusiastic about it? <laughs> You're quite right, though. Quite right. All right. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I came across the name of a, another songwriter. His name is Norman J. Clayton. And there are two or three of his songs that really, when I was a kid, I was a teenager, that really touched me. And there's one who was called to only to be what he wants me to be every moment of every day. Yielded completely to Jesus my Lord every step of this pilgrim way. Just to be clay in the potter's hands, just to do what his word commands. Only to be what he wants me to be every moment of every day. Do you remember that one? No, you're not old enough. <laughs> it's a beautiful song, nice kind of jazz feel about it. It was really good. 
Um, he wrote another one called Now I Belong to Jesus, which is still a very popular song. And Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him, no power of evil can sever. Beautiful song. The chorus goes, Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Another beautiful song and a kind of a jazz feel about. And then you wrote another one that I uh, just remembered this morning as I was looking at this message. It's called um, When the Road is Rough and Steep, Fix Your Eyes Upon Jesus. He alone has power to keep. Fix your eyes upon him. Jesus is a gracious friend. He will keep you to the end. He's, uh, uh, Mr. Lyman, uh, he is faithful to the end. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon him. Norman Clayton was born in 1903. He was one of 10 children, born in Brooklyn, New York. Born into a black family. Uh, became a talented pianist and church organist. Started a gospel music company, which was later taken over by big business, but still publishes gospel songs. He died at the age of 89 in 1992. So he's a 20th century songwriter. And uh, these are the words of the song I just quoted. When the road is rough and steep, fix your eyes upon Jesus. He alone has power to keep, fix your eyes upon him. Jesus is a gracious, gracious friend, one on whom you can depend. He is faithful to the end. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon him. And that's the message this morning. Just fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Seek the kingdom of God. Seek um, the things that are above where Christ is. And then think about those things. Set your mind on those things that are above. So Paul's like strengthening him, saying, well, the first time, seek those things. Don't just seek them. Set your mind on them. Think about them. And make this a central focus of who you are and how you live. Because he has done so many wonderful things for us, then our focus needs to be on who he is and how we can serve him. Is that okay? All right, let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank you today because we know you're here with us. We thank you because of the wonderful truth of your word. And dear God, today we, we pray that we will have the grace and the faith to do just that in our lives. Lord, simply to, to live a Christ-centered, Christ-focused life. We pray it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Now you're getting really desperate. <laughs> right, I shall I haven't played this film since I was 16 years old. Do you want to have a listen to it? Sure. Two people said yes or no. Okay. I played this about twice this morning, and I know it was the first time for 50 years.